A PC-12 decides to divert to Burt Mooney Airport in Montana when something goes wrong. What caused this flight to crash so close to touchdown? Welcome back to the Heartlandings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. And I'm Christy. Hello. Hello. We need to do a checklist. See, we need to, like, we, we know, need to have the checklist. Right yes. away, sport, right here. Things All to do. All the stuff we need to do, talk about at the beginning of an episode. Our pre flight checklist. <laughs> Wait. That's exactly what we need to do. <laughs> That's what it is. Wait a minute. It's a pre flight checklist. Wait. Pre flight checklist. Listener stories. Submit them, please. Thank you. Please. Thank you. We just recorded the one with all of the stories we have for June and July. They we'll release great. that. They were actually really yeah, good. Yeah, it'll get to you when I have time and able to think. And it's fine. But they are really good. Really good stories. I really I really enjoyed this month's. Yes, they were really good. They were not really that I ever not enjoy them. They're that's really true. good. But they this, are really good. this month was really good. It was really good. It was, thank you. If you've never submitted a story before, you should consider giving us a story. Which we did have quite a few new ones. New people. We did. A story, and I really appreciate that. They're very good. So thank you for that. We high-key appreciate you. We have ducks we are sending ducks we have a lot of ducks submit listener questions also we like those yeah and i think we've talked about this before but they can literally be about anything anything it does not have to be about aviation or the episodes it literally can be what do you do in your free time <laughs> this <laughs> hey, 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 you're hey. not wrong <laughs> like this Takes what, up our free time. What yeah. kind of car do you drive? That will actually come up in today's episode. It will? I talk about Miranda's car in this episode. Oh, okay. So stay tuned. I actually talk about it. Check out Patreon. We don't have any new patrons to thank, but we could next episode if you join. That's right. Because everyone gets a shout out, by the way. Yes, so. everybody. And if we missed you, please tell us. Please. We try our best. Sometimes there's like a big influx of people. And I was like, where did it end? Where did yeah. it stop? Sometimes we'll have like three or four in a day new ones. And we're like, what did we do? It'll be on like a Friday yeah. <laughs> or something. And we're like, what happened? Did anybody post anything? What <laughs> happened today? Like <laughs> somebody found it and liked it. Really strange. Really? I, I feel like it probably comes from like somebody shared one of our posts or something somewhere. I don't know. Okay, friendos, thank you for listening to the rambly stuff. What are we covering today, Nick? Today, we're covering something different, actually. November 128, Charlie Mike. Yes, it's a tail number. Thank you to Kevin, our patron, for recommending this. It makes a lot of sense once I knew who did the recommendation. I know. <laughs> because it is a PC-12, and which is why Kevin is involved. Because Kevin works on that kind of engine. Yep, he works on the PT-6. Specifically for the PC-12, primarily, because he works on Pilatus. So, they have a big factory here in Colorado now. But they're Swiss-built. Where's the factory? BJC. Massive. Oh. Huge. It's on the opposite side of the airport from everything. This is also, like, my size of an airplane. Like, we went by it one day when we were at the airport, and I was like, guys, look, it's my airplane. <laughs> <laughs> when you compare it to all the airliners, yes. When you're at a GA airport, it's still relatively large. I mean, it's nice, actually. The airline that normally flies these out of Denver International Airport, otherwise known as DIA, is Boutique Air. Yep, Boutique Air. They have a bunch of them. They fly M121 for essential air service routes. So this is a single-engine turbine airplane. It is prop-driven, but it is turbine. uses the infamous PT-6, same thing the King Air uses, same thing the TBM uses, same thing that I could go on and on. There are a bunch. 
This is the most reliable engine on Earth. It's also one of the most used engines on Earth. And this is a very capable airplane. Extremely capable. It is one of the most prevalent aircraft in general aviation, I should say Part 91 Uh use, but also in any kind of commercial aviation non-related to passengers, so non-121 or 135. It is used for medical operations. It's used for charter. It's used for... All sorts of little things, fire and rescue, they use them for everything. The military uses them. I mean, they are unbelievably capable airplanes because they can take off and land fully loaded in like 2,700 feet. That is relevant. Remember that. Yep. They can also take off and land on basically any surface because they have a very unique landing gear. Also remember that. Right. But this is a small airplane. Foreshadowing. Very capable, but very... It's not. It's small, but it's really, it's not. <laughs> it is small in the grand scheme of things compared to everything else we talk about. It's very small. But compared to most general aviation aircraft, it's not necessarily. This aircraft in particular was owned by Eagle Cap Leasing. Of Oregon. Of Oregon. This happened on February 22nd of 2009. The flight we're going to be talking about was supposed to be Redlands, California, to Vacaville, California, to Oroville, California, to Bozeman, Montana. I would like to mention that Vacaville, ah. if you look in the glossary, is called Nut Tree. Yes, the airport <laughs> is called Nut Tree, yes. And I can't say that with a straight face. <laughs> it's a pretty, f- it's like, it's pretty funny. Yep. And I didn't realize that until like halfway through the report, so I'd written Nut Tree all through my script, and then it said Vacaville. I was like, yep. oh, I can use that. That's okay. Yep, yep. <laughs> I named the cities, but yes, the airports usually have other names. I do that actually frequently. Most of the airports we talk about, I just name, like, the city. I don't talk about the airport name. The pilot, I don't have a name, was male. He was 65 years old at the time. He had 8,840 hours total, of which 1,760 hours were on the PC-12. And he was hired as a personal pilot for this aircraft. This one is very unique because we don't talk about Part 91 almost ever. But Part 91 is literally just general aviation. As you would take an airplane to go fly for fun. This is non-hired. So he was hired as a personal pilot. This is where the, like, the weird caveat is of like, you can still be commercial and operate in Part 91. Mm-hmm. He's hired as a personal pilot. So this airplane is not chartered. It is owned. And the people who own it can fly it to wherever. They just hire a pilot to do it. Therefore, it's not charter because it's their airplane. Mm-hmm. So, but he has to have a commercial license to do that, right? Correct. Okay, because which he he's has. getting paid. Right, which he has. So he's getting paid to fly the airplane for the, whoever the owner of the airplane is, basically. Which I can th- be a group, too. I just wanted to make that distinction because you cannot just be a pilot and fly an nope. aircraft like that. You have to be commercially rated to there be hired. There are unbelievably so. specific rules what you can and cannot make in terms of money in aviation. And until you get your commercial license, you cannot make any profit. Zero. None. If you fly with somebody, they can pay their share of fuel, basically, at maybe rental costs. But that is, it's, it, there are very specific rules to this. So basically, you are not allowed to profit in any way whatsoever. So that is why a commercial license is One of the primary goals for most pilots is just to get to that point, because that's where you can start making money flying. In any case, the day before the accident at Redland, California, the pilot had the airplane fueled with 222 gallons of Jet A, because this is a German airplane. It takes jet fuel, which is basically diesel. 
He also filed three flight plans for the next day, which included the flights from Redland to Nut Tree Airport in Vacaville, California, and then another from Nut Tree to Oroville, and then finally the flight to Bozeman, Montana. Along the way, they are due to pick up people. So where, Presumably, are, they, where are they starting? Redland. Redland. Redland, okay. On February 22nd, the flight left Redland at 7.42 a.m. Pacific Standard Time, arriving at the Nut Tree Airport in Vacaville at 9.30 a.m., Pacific time. Fuel was again added to the aircraft at Vacaville for their short stopover. The flight then departed Vacaville at 10.20 a.m. with nine passengers, which included four adults and five children. The filed flight plan for the flight, however, only included four, plus the pilot. Four adults. Four adults, plus the pilot. Thirteen minutes after takeoff from Vacaville, the flight arrived at Oroville. Very short hop. Very short. At Oroville, four more passengers, two adults and two children, boarded the airplane for a total of 13 passengers and one crew. Again, the filed flight plan only indicated eight passengers plus the pilot for the flight. Yes. Make so that you're face. A That's some sketchy Yep. Yes. Continue to make that face. <laughs> I think my face would hurt if I made it too much. Okay. But I'm sure if there's some sketchy that comes up, I'll make it again. That's fair. The airplane then departed Oroville at 11.10 a.m. Pacific time. From here, all times will be in Mountain Daylight time because they transition into Mountain Daylight time. Our local time. Yep, our local time. This leg of the flight was to be an estimated 2 hours and 30 minutes. They had 3 hours and 30 minutes worth of fuel on board. 12.28 p.m., 18 minutes after takeoff, the Oakland Air Route Traffic Control Center cleared the airplane direct to Bozeman. 12.44 p.m., the pilot made initial contact with the controller at Salt Lake City Air Route Traffic Control Center, or Salt Lake Air Route Traffic Control. 1.08 p.m. and 53 seconds, when the pilot informed the traffic controller that he would be off frequency for about two to three minutes, which was acknowledged and allowed by the air traffic controller, and then he requested that the pilot report when he's back on the frequency. The pilot then contacted the Salt Lake Flight Watch to request weather information for Bozeman. The pilot then returned to the Salt Lake Air Route Traffic Control Center frequency at 1.13 p.m. and 51 seconds. So he really was only gone for a few minutes. Sometime later, at 1.59 p.m. and 28 seconds, so now like 45 minutes later, the pilot contacted the Salt Lake Air Route Traffic Control Sector 6 controller while flying at the assigned altitude of flight level 250 or 25,000 feet. Capable airplane. Yes. <laughs> for a GA airplane. 2.02 p.m. and 52 seconds. The airplane's course changed suddenly. The airplane turned left away from its course to Bozeman without having contacted the air traffic controller. 2.03 p.m. and 25 seconds, the pilot did finally contact air traffic control to report a change of destination to Burt Mooney Airport in Butte, Montana. Can they do that? Yes. Yep. Of course you can. Especially in general aviation. If you're flying part 91, of course you can change your destination because, I mean, they don't really care where you're going. Hmm. You did not give a reason as to why they changed. The air traffic controller did not question this decision and cleared the flight to fly direct to Burt Mooney, or Butte, but to continue flying at flight level 250, which the pilot acknowledged. Neither airport is terribly far away. We'll get there. 2.04 p.m. in nine seconds, the flight began descending from flight level 250. But again, it wasn't until 25 seconds later that the pilot requested a lower altitude from the air traffic controller. He just started descending. He's doing great. Mm -hmm. The air traffic controller informed the flight of the altimeter setting for... Burt Mooney Airport, or Butte, before issuing a descent to 14,000 feet at the pilot's discretion. The pilot acknowledged and continued to descend. 14,000 feet would put the airplane just 900 feet above the minimum IFR altitude or instrument flight rules altitude of 13,100 feet due to the terrain in the area they were currently flying over. A.K.A. the Rocky Mountains? Yep. 
So, I mean, this is an appropriate altitude. It is still mm-hmm. within the legal limits, but anything below that, they have to go VFR because of the terrain. 2.05 p.m. in 23 seconds, the pilot again asked to change the flight's destination to Burt Mooney. The air traffic controller informed the pilot that he had already previously cleared him to Burt Mooney. So, not really sure why we're having this conversation again. The pilot responded that they were descending to 14,000 feet. Yes, thank you. 2.06 p.m. in 15 seconds, the air traffic controller instructed the pilot to, quote, advise receipt of Butte, Montana weather and no TAMs, end quote. To which the pilot replied, will co, which is... Will comply. A very old term in aviation just stands for will comply, but it's not used very often anymore because it's not really considered an appropriate response. In this case, because the instruction is not a standard instruction, it's not really... Like, normally, the the air traffic controller doesn't ask for them to advise when they have the weather and stuff. Like, that's just... They would ask what ATIS information you have. Mm -hmm. But in this case, because it's kind of a non-standard thing that they've asked for, Wilco is an okay response. It's not necessarily the wrong thing. But it is a pretty outdated term. It's not considered an appropriate response in 99% of cases in aviation. The pilot never reported having received the weather in the NOTAMs, however, and the air traffic controller also did not follow up on this. 2.19 p.m., a controller swap occurred, and the new controller was also not advised that the flight was to report receipt of the weather in no TAMs for Butte, so he also didn't request it from the flight. 2.22 p.m. and 50 seconds, the new air traffic controller advised the flight to descend to 13,000 feet and advise of the airplane's position relative to Butte, Montana, or Bert Mooney. The air traffic controller then also asked that the pilot report when he had the airport in sight. All of this was acknowledged by the pilot. 2.24 p.m. and 38 seconds, the pilot requested an even lower altitude. The air traffic controller instructed the pilot to descend and maintain 12,200 feet, which was now the minimum IFR altitude for the approach to Burt Mooney at that point, where they were flying. Basically, they could go down to 12,200. That was okay. The pilot acknowledged the altitude change. 2.26 p.m. and 49 seconds, something strange happened. The flight descended past 12,200 feet. 2.27 p.m., two hours and 17 minutes into this flight, a caution indicated and sounded in the cockpit. That's not such a good thing. 2.27 p.m. and 27 seconds, the air traffic controller advised the pilot that Burt Mooney was at his 12 o'clock position, 12 miles away, and asked if the pilot had the airport in sight. The pilot responded, quote, Yeah, as soon as we get past one more cloud, end quote. Kind of an odd one. 2.28 p.m. in 43 seconds, the pilot reported that he had the airport in sight and canceled his IFR clearance, his instrument flight rules, which is okay. Once you have the airport in sight, you can do a VFR landing. The airplane was at about 8 miles from the Burt Mooney Airport at that time, flying at 11,000 feet. Six seconds later, the air traffic controller acknowledged the IFR clearance cancellation and instructed the pilot to squawk 1200 on his transponder, which is the universal code for VFR. That means you are on your own, basically. I mean, you're still talking to air traffic control here and there, but you're, you, you, don't have, you don't have a flight plan. It's on you. The air traffic controller also advised the pilot that there was no known or observed traffic in the area between the airplane and the airport, so nothing, no conflict. The pilot, however, did not acknowledge this and unfortunately never communicated with air traffic control again. The aircraft's transponder code was also never changed to 1200. Moments later, an employee at an FBO or fixed base operation, basically we would call them a jet center, most airports, it's where private jets and small aircraft go when they visit a place, that's where they keep the airplane, get it fueled. It's the the service center and lounge, basically. So moments later, an employee at an FBO at Burt Mooney was monitoring the common traffic frequency. These are most commonly known as Unicom. So it's a single frequency for the airport and all its traffic. 
on his radio when he heard the pilot announce that he was inbound and intending to land on runway 33. The airport does not have air traffic control, so this was the only way that communication happens at the airport as a unicom frequency. Like, just because the employee is monitoring doesn't mean he has any say over any of the traffic or anything. He's just listening. 2.30 p.m. in 25 seconds, the aircraft was flying at 9,100 feet, which was 3,550 feet above the ground, at about 1.8 miles southwest of the threshold. Witnesses noticed the key thing that I just pointed out. The airplane was flying much too high for a normal approach to the airport. 1.8 miles is not very far. They covered that distance in a matter of a minute, and they're flying 3,550 feet above the ground. Normally, by this point, even airliners are usually only like 500 above. So that's high. The same witness stated that the airplane suddenly entered a steep left turn while flying at about 300 feet above the ground. Simultaneously, the airplane pitched down suddenly. Just seconds later, the aircraft impacted the ground just 2,100 feet west of the runway centerline. Emergency services were notified at 2.32 p.m. and 26 seconds and dispatched immediately to search for the airplane. Wasn't long before the airplane was found, crashed in a cemetery just west of the airport. The hard impact crushed the airplane and caused an immediate post-crash fire that burned the airplane immediately. The impact also destroyed several headstones in the cemetery, as probably expected. Unfortunately, all 14 on board the aircraft perished in the accident. There's a lot to unpack there, because there's a lot of things that just went wrong. Okay. You have questions. There's I know you do. no way you can guess this. There's also no way that you don't have questions, because I know there's a lot of things here that... It's oh. just, like, the the process of what happened. Because they were too high, mm-hmm. and then they were 300 feet, and then mm-hmm. they tilted, and then they crashed. So, mm-hmm. I don't know how they got from point A to point C. Exactly. We'll talk about that. There's also a plethora of other things that I just talked about that are very, very, very wrong. I don't actually really talk about the last part of the flight at all. But we'll talk about, in general, after she explains what happened We'll talk about what happened in those last moments because it it all makes sense once you put the pieces together. I will like to preface my part with normally I spend most of my time in the report in section two, which is the analysis, and a minimal amount of time in section 1.16, which is tests and research. That is not the case this time. So I do not cover everything that is in the analysis portion, and I'm leaving a lot of that to the findings, just so y'all are aware. Okay. Which means it's going to get technical. Yep. So, this investigation was performed by the... NTSB. And, as expected, the accident aircraft was neither equipped with nor required to be equipped with a cockpit voice recorder or a flight data recorder. Nope. Why would you? This is a discussion in general aviation, though. Yes, it is. So, they're left with nothing recorded, right? Wrong. Wrong. They actually recovered the Central Advisory and Warning System, or CAUSE which displays up to 48 individual indications in the cockpit using colored LEDs, as well as records them. And this is how they truly figured out what happened. Without it, they would have had to go through step-by-step, system-by-system to even know where to begin. But the cause recorded the warnings from the flight, which means I'm not leading you down any rabbit holes today. My, My notes are long enough. At the end of the flight, towards the end of the flight, I should say, you might recall that an alarm went off. When investigators looked at the cause recordings, they found that a low fuel alarm went off for the right wing fuel tank. That's odd for two reasons. One, why was there a low fuel level in the right tank? And two, why was it only in the right tank? Questions. Well, the good news about having recovered the cause is that it holds actually a lot of data. And I mean a lot. 
it held advisory and warning data for the previous 480 flights. That's insane. That's a lot. <laughs> That's probably the entire airplane's life cycle. Uh, it's the previous two years. That's probably the entire airplane's life cycle. So there you go. <laughs> Investigators went through and compared the recent flights with the previous flights and found something very interesting. Of the 480 previous flights, between 477 of them, the fuel boost pumps activated a total across all of those flights 29 times. Those were consistent with the automatic fuel balancing system. Two flights... The one from Redlands to Vacaville, as well as the accident flight, along with one other flight from 2007, had way more fuel boost pump activations. When the boost pump activates, it runs for 10 seconds before turning off to see if it's still needed. And this is called a cycle. The flight in 2007 had 260 activations. The flight from Redlands to Vacaville had 176 activations, and the accident flight had 337. Ouch. So something's funky with the fuel system. Mm-hmm. And that's concerning. Let's go deeper into what it showed. For the flight from Redlands, the cycling didn't begin until an hour and 30 into the flight, at which point both boost pumps began cycling. 15 minutes later, the left one remained on continuously and the right one shut off. It remained this way until six minutes later, which was the last entry for the flight. Notice, the fuel pumps were cycling for a while. That's odd because they're designed to turn off 10 seconds after the fuel system pressure is restored to 3.5 PSI. This means that the fuel pressure dropped below 2 PSI each time the pumps turned off. So they kept turning on a fraction of a second after turning off. So it's like, I'm on, you still need me? Okay, I'm on, you still need me? Yup. And then the left fuel boost pump was on continuously, and the right one turned off. This means that there was a recorded imbalance of 70 pounds, or 5% of the fuel capacity, and it was trying to boost fuel from the left tank to compensate until they were equal again. So that was the flight from Redlands to Vacaville. On the accident flight, things happened much sooner. Quote, For the accident flight leg, the cause data showed that about 22 minutes into the flight, the right fuel boost pump was on continuously for 3 minutes 45 seconds. This time period was consistent with the average duration of the 29 fuel pump activations for automatic lateral fuel balancing. The left and right fuel boost pumps began cycling about an hour 13 into the flight. About 1 hour 18 minutes into the flight, the left fuel boost pump was on continuously and the right fuel boost pump was off. Sound familiar? Mm -hmm. About an hour and 21 minutes into the flight, the right fuel boost pump resumed cycling. After that time, the right fuel boost pump was cycling or was on continuously, and the left fuel boost pump was on continuously or was off. End quote. Furthermore, about six minutes before the final cause message, the R fuel low caution was logged, indicating that 133 pounds of fuel remained in the right fuel tank. 133 pounds. Pilatus, the aircraft manufacturer, calculated what fuel consumption would have looked like for both the accident flight as well as the Redlands to Vacaville flight. The first flight was estimated to have burned 832 pounds of fuel, given their flight profile. The short hop to Oroville burned about 200 pounds, and the accident flight was estimated to have burned 979 pounds. The accident airplane was fueled to full capacity at 406.8 gallons the day before the accident, adding a total of 222 gallons of Jet A via fueled truck at Redlands Municipal Airport. Investigators interviewed the fuel company as well as got camera footage to determine what transpired at both that airport and Vacaville, where the pilot took on 128 gallons of fuel at a self-fueling station. 
This data was used to determine fuel levels given the calculated fuel consumption. All of this, coupled with the cause warning data, indicated that the flight was in a left-wing heavy fuel condition with the left-wing fuel tank filled to capacity at 1,368 pounds and the right fuel tank almost empty at 66 pounds. Mm -hmm. Could that have led to a loss of control? In going through the wreckage, investigators found that the ailerons were trimmed to full right wing down to compensate for a heavy left wing, as well as airplane nose left from the rudder. Both of these show a forward side slip to the right and a left wing down rolling moment supporting the full left fuel tank theory. Nick, can you explain what a side slip is real quick? Side slip means you're not pointed directly down the runway with the nose. You're actually, you would be pointed to the, like, you'd be flying sideways essentially. So imagine you're flying at the runway, but you're looking out, say, the left window or the right window to look straight down the runway. And that is your direction of flight. That would be a side slip. It's a little more complicated than that because it usually in, requires cross control a little bit. And there's, there's a lot that goes into this maneuver. But usually this is something, this is a situation you put yourself into for a reason. Yeah, like we've done it with Brendan mm -hmm. before when he was like, I'm too high, give me a second, I'm going to do a side slip. <laughs> mm -hmm. And it loses altitude pretty fast, but it's a controlled way to do so. And there's a relatively big reason why it's easy to lose control in this situation and why this maneuver loses altitude. Because you're losing lift over a wing, but you're not actually losing airspeed. Right. Which is how they managed to get from such a high altitude down to 300 feet. Yeah, exactly. makes sense. Yeah. Yep. Quote, Pilatus calculated that a side slip with the accident conditions and airspeeds close to the PC-12 stall speed of 93 knots would require 22 degrees, or 55%, of the 40 degrees of available aileron, a left aileron input of 8 degrees and a right aileron input of negative 14 degrees, with full aileron trim of 15 degrees, which would result in a 20-pound control wheel input. These calculations assumed that enough rudder was available to balance the yawing motion resulting from side slip and that the rudder had little effect on the rolling moment. In addition, Pilatus found that with the side slip maneuver, static conditions, and straight and level flight, an airplane with a fuel imbalance of about 1,300 pounds would have been controllable to an airspeed of about 90 knots with about one half of the available aileron. Pilatus's calculations did not consider the airplane dynamics such as yaw and roll rate, associated with landing, or the possibility that the pilot was performing a go-around maneuver at low speed at the time of the maximum fuel imbalance, end quote. So he was wavering so, on losing control. And maybe I just wasn't paying attention and I didn't hear this, but is it the pilot's fault that the fuel tanks were not fueled correctly? No. I'm not there yet. Okay. I, I This is having to work backwards based on the stuff that they have. They knew that there was a fuel imbalance based on how the plane was acting and the alarms it was getting. But why? Is it one of those where, like, I know that there's a thing on an airplane that you can choose which fuel tank to take fuel out of? That's on some airplanes. In this case, the airplane does it for you. Okay. It, well, then why would it not take the same amount of fuel from both? It's supposed to. We're getting there. So, you're asking the right questions. You and are. investigators had a theory. The PC-12 is required to use a fuel system icing inhibitor, which I will from now on call an FSII, whenever the ambient temperature is below freezing. It's an additive to fuel that prevents icing in the fuel. What if he didn't use it? Going back to the interviews with the fueling company at Redlands, they testified that the pilot did not ask for fuel that was pre-mixed with FSII. 
Aha, but the fuel pump had the ability to inject FSII while fueling. But alas, the pilot didn't do that. So, at Vacaville, the pilot refueled to maximum capacity once more, but the fuel was not premixed with FSII, and that fuel pump, which was at a self-fueling station, couldn't inject it either. And the surveillance footage didn't show any attempt to add FSII. Okay, well that doesn't matter a whole whole lot as long as he sampled the fuel to make sure it didn't have water or other contaminants in it, right? Surveillance video showed he didn't do that. Oh, you're supposed to do that. Yeah, uh-huh. He didn't do that part as, as part of his pre-flight. So what you're supposed to do as a pilot, you're, you have this little, uh, I think it's called a sump, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, that's, a sump is, yeah, one of the words. And it, there's a small port in the bottom of the wing or on the top of the wing, depending on the kind of plane. But you just stick it in there, you get some fuel in it, and you can see if there's any contaminants like metal Mm-hmm. in the fuel, or if there's a separation between fuel and water. So that's how you can tell if your fuel is contaminated. You should do that. They didn't do that. But, like, okay, so giving him the benefit of the doubt, I know you just said that there was no evidence of him doing it at the original destination, mm-hmm. which, okay, but it, are you supposed to do that at every stop you take? Whenever you add fuel. Yes. Every time you add fuel, because you don't know what was in the fuel. Basically. So he just uh, wasn't doing what he was supposed to do. No. No. So surveillance showed that he didn't do that and he didn't sample the fuel filter drain. Had he done so before the flight to Oroville, he could have found if there were ice crystals or water in the fuel. But would ice crystals or water in the fuel explain the lack of fuel usage from the left tank? Investigators performed a test using the same equipment on a PC-12 and found that at below freezing temperatures, regardless of if there was water in the fuel or not, Ice built up and restricted fuel flow from the left tank. Oh, so it was blocked from being used. Yeah, 100%. Mind you, regardless of if there was contaminants in the fuel or not, even good fuel. It was just too cold. Mm -hmm. This is why the PC-12 is required to use FSII. Mm -hmm. This was a known issue, and there's fixes for it. You just gotta do it. Had he flown a PC-12 before? Yeah, 1,100 hours worth. I mean, I don't remember that from the beginning of the episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, he had he had tons of hours in the PC-12. No, yep. he was well experienced on the PC-12. That's not the problem. And there was a history of him using FSII before. So, I don't know. It just doesn't make sense to me why he wouldn't use it now. Me either. When tested with FSII, the fuel along with water, the fuel flow rate was maintained, even at a low temperature. So, had he used FSII, this would not have happened. Period. Now, is there anything else the pilot could have done while in flight? Absolutely. By the time the pilot changed course and turned toward Burt Mooney Airport without ATC clearance, by the way, his fuel quantity indicator would have already shown a huge differential. The indicators are similar to some cars in that it uses bars rather than a dial to indicate how much fuel is in the tank. I know that Miranda's Honda Civic does that. <laughs> it does do that. Yep. Most car- Every car I've had uses a dial. There's a fuel indicator for each fuel tank, and the maximum allowable differential between the tanks per VPC-12 airplane flight manual, is three bars. There would have been a 15-bar differential at the point he diverted. That's massive. Before the course changed, the pilot tried to balance the fuel load using the fuel pumps, but it didn't work. He resorted to diverting once he understood the gravity of his situation way too late. He also didn't provide a reason for his request to divert, perhaps due to embarrassment. 
He also didn't select the nearest airport to divert to, thereby letting the situation degrade. The PC-12 manual states that should the airplane exceed the maximum allowable fuel imbalance, you are to land as soon as practical. He passed that point at 1.31 p.m. and didn't divert until 2.02. He might have thought, though, that maybe it would fix itself. But obviously it wasn't. Yeah. And it was getting worse. There's still a point where you're supposed to divert. I mean... And well, he clearly wasn't doing what he was supposed to be doing anyway. Right. Well, and the, the other big problem is when he did choose to divert, it was almost the same distance away to Butte as it was just to make it to Bozeman. Well, back up. Before even that, he passed so many airports. Oh, yeah. Of course he did. And all of the ones I'm about to mention had a runway that was 3,000 feet or longer and was reporting VMC. Visual meteorological conditions. So, four minutes after reaching the three-bar differential, so at 1.35, he would have been six minutes from diverting to Boise, but he passed Boise. The next nearest was Twin Falls, which was 18 minutes away, but would have required turning around to the right. Next was Chalice, 22 minutes away from their 140 position. The fuel imbalance at that point would have been a five-bar differential. If he had diverted to either Twin Falls or Chalice, he would have landed with a 15-bar differential. At 2 p.m., they were four minutes from Chalice and at 15 bars of differential, but at 2.02, he chose to divert even further to Butte, Montana, which was 29 minutes away. Along that route, he passed Dillon about 15 minutes from their 2.05 p.m. position. At 2.15, with a 22-bar differential, they were seven minutes from Dillon, but 13 minutes from Butte. They crashed on approach. Uh, maybe he just wanted to land in Montana. To be in Montana. There's a few things with that. No, not necessarily. But Butte and Bozeman are larger airports compared to most of the, not Boise or Twin Falls. But the other two, Chalice and Dillon, Butte and Bozeman are bigger airports. And there's this whole bit about how he may have wanted to go to an airport that he felt would be more comfortable for landing for services, for everything, than one of these smaller airports. But ultimately, it wasn't the safe decision. Who cares what airport you go to? You're supposed to land. As soon as practical. Right. That is what the manual says. Right. You are flying under that manual. Correct. And we just don't know why he just didn't do his job. Nope, because we don't have a CVR, we don't have an FDR. But the thing we can kind of tell you is that There is a prevalence throughout this entire flight thing, if you were listening to me, to just do the wrong thing. Well, there was already two, there was more passengers on board than what was on the flight manifest. And that's because there were more people on board than there were seats. Which is illegal, isn't it? Heavily. Also, they took off above maximum takeoff weight. I was going to ask about that. Yep. They had 14 people on a nine-seat airplane. Probably had bags and stuff, too. Yep. The children were supposedly sitting in laps, but they were all bigger than lap children. And in any case, it was already a relatively known thing that the regulation was changing and is required to have any, even two or younger, to have their own seat, but with restraints that actually fit them. So he's flying this airplane for the owner, correct? Mm -hmm. Correct. So my thought is, and I hate thinking this because as a pilot, you're allowed to say... No. no. Right. But because he's getting paid for this job, mm-hmm. it and he's 65 years old, too. Right. So who knows? Maybe he needed the money. Maybe whatever. Put him in the mindset that, well, 
it's fine because I'm getting paid for this job. I just need to get them there. And in reality, you shouldn't have taken off to begin with. Right. Be- or have picked up more passengers because there's too many people on the airplane. Yeah. And therefore, you are breaking the law at that point, And the people who are owning the airplane are breaking the law. Yeah. This is unfortunately a very common thing in general aviation because who's checking? But there's, you're flying there's your own family. A limitation for a reason. Exactly, and I agree with you. And many people in general aviation would agree with you. But when people who don't fly buy airplanes and it's just to fly around their family and friends, there tends to be a lackadaisical attitude, buddy buddy lackadaisical well, attitude that starts to become. I mean, this pilot might have been somebody they knew too. We don't know. Like it might. I don't know all of that. I didn't get too deep into the who was who, but. And they don't either. They don't explain it. There's no Wikipedia page for this or anything. But it is a difficult thing because there's nobody checking this to this day. Like, you're not going to, there's nobody out on airfields checking who's getting on airplanes. But my, here's my big problem with this though mm-hmm. is it's not like this airplane is like a jet airliner where you have space to like stand. No, you can't so even stand in it. What are you <laughs> like sitting on the floor? I'm assuming that's what happened. Yeah, sitting on the floor, sitting on laps. Which is just, da- it's dangerous. And this is like a three-hour flight. Mm-hmm. That can't be comfortable. I I just have a really, really, really big problem with people who are like, oh, we'll do it anyway. It's like, I hate to say this, but we did this when we were in high school, like mm-hmm. shoving a bunch of people in a car. Sardining people in. Yeah. We And I'm, I'm saying, truly, we did do this. Yeah. But it's dangerous. Like, there's not enough seatbelts. There's too much issues that can go wrong oh yeah people get really hurt when you do stuff like that and so just throwing caution to the wind and saying this is fine even though it's not fine isn't okay right i don't care if you own the airplane or not yeah this was i mean that's just one of many things too because that was a obviously blatant negligence and on top of that there was just again there was just kind of a a habit to do the wrong thing throughout diverting without talking to ATC without getting clearance from ATC descending before getting clearance from ATC. All of these things are indicative of lackadaisical attitude Mm -hmm. and willful negligence. I mean, it's unfortunate, but that is very heavily what led to this accident because it was preventable. A hundred percent. Many, many points along the way. Not just about where they could have diverted, but, but they the fuel. could have put the right thing in the fuel. The additive, which we'll get into this, but it was a known thing on the PC-12. And the problem that they had was there was nothing anywhere that actually stated it was a requirement. We'll talk about it. That's in the findings. Anyways. So we're going to take a break. Yep. On that somber note. And we'll come back with the findings. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Okay, we're back. Let's do some findings. This does have findings and recommendations. First and second one were about the pilot and the airplane, which, yes, were certified. Okay. Questionable. Fine. Technically. Yep. They found that the low fuel pressure state and the restricted fuel supply from the left tank during the accident flight were the result of an accumulation of ice in the fuel system with an initial concentrated amount of ice at the airframe fuel filter. 
very specific point along the way that this ice would build up in the fuel. So, known thing. They found that if the pilot had added a fuel system icing inhibitor, or FSII, to the fuel for the flights on the day of the accident as required, the ice accumulation in the fuel system would have been avoided, and a left-wing heavy fuel imbalance would not have developed. They found that if the pilot had performed a complete pre-flight inspection before the flight to Oroville Municipal Airport, he would have had an opportunity to detect whether ice crystals or water were present in the fuel and determine whether the fuel filter bypass indicator was extended, which could have explained the reason for the fuel boost pump advisories enunciated during the preceding flight. So basically, he had a warning in the cockpit previously, or a caution, that told him there was an issue with the boost pumps. It's just running all the time. Yep, and so the cause, the CAWS, it is sorted into severity of warnings so the red ones are you need this is immediate attention like right now yellow is okay this needs your attention but it can wait a little bit green is this is just an advice just so you know and the boost pumps were green right so it was kind of an afterthought obviously shouldn't have been they found that about one hour and 21 minutes into the flight the fuel supplied to the airplane's engine was being drawn solely from the right fuel tank by the right fuel boost pump and the left-wing heavy fuel imbalance continued to increase, because literally all it could do was draw from the right side. It was the only place it could get fuel. They found that the left and right fuel tanks were equally receiving fuel through the fuel return lines, but the left-wing heavy fuel imbalance continued to increase during the flight because fuel was only being drawn from the right fuel tank. They found that the fuel system continued to provide fuel to the engine throughout the flight, even with the low fuel pressure state and the degraded performance of the left side fuel system. They found that although the pilot should have diverted to a nearby airport once the maximum allowable fuel imbalance had been exceeded, the pilot eventually diverted to Burt Mooney Airport, likely because he recognized the magnitude of the situation and his attempts to resolve the increasing left-wing heavy fuel imbalance had been unsuccessful. So what they're saying there is they think that he probably skipped the other airports because he had tried some things, but hadn't really comprehended just how bad his situation was yet until it was basically too late. Yeah. It's unfortunate because he was so close to the airport, but it's at that critical moment, basically, where he was in a slip trying to descend quickly because he had put himself at the wrong altitude for the approach, didn't set himself up well. But also you're at a critical point where you're slow. You're slowing the airplane down to that stall margin. And then you stall one wing, and one wing is extremely heavy. And that's the wing you stall. So down it went. That's why he went into a left turn immediately. Well, it probably also didn't help that the plane was also already heavy because it had more people on board than it was supposed to. Yeah, that doesn't help either. But we'll get there. That didn't actually factor into anything because at that point, they had burned enough fuel for this to not be a problem. (laughs) They found that the airplane was controllable in static flight with the left-wing heavy fuel imbalance that existed at the time of the accident, but the pilot lost control of the airplane with the dynamic maneuvers during the final moments of flight, the slip. Dynamic maneuvers being the slip. They found that the large left rolling moment induced by the left-wing heavy fuel imbalance could have been minimized or even avoided if the pilot had followed Pilatus Aircraft's required procedures for flight operations with a fuel imbalance. If he had understood and flown the airplane the way Pilatus tells him to when there's a fuel imbalance, he would have landed the airplane. Which is probably to avoid maneuvers like a slip. Yes. They found that if the pilot had diverted earlier in the flight to one of the several suitable airports along the airplane's route of flight, the outcome of this flight would likely have been different because the airplane would have had a less severe fuel imbalance and the pilot would not have had to contend with the airplane's deteriorating performance as the imbalance steadily progressed. English is hard. (laughs) So if he did a Mm go-around instead of trying to do the slip... Mm -hmm. Would he have been able to come back around and 
land. There's a better chance it still would have been because he was he was losing. It was calculated that he would lose control at about 90 knots. That's tough to land slower than that. Right. Well, but part of the problem was he was high. Yes. He did the slip because he was too high. Right. Yes. If he had avoided doing the slip, there's a good chance he would have landed. And if he had gone around to try to reattempt, yes, there's a good chance he would have landed. The problem that he was starting to have, though, is he didn't have much time left to do a go around even because the right tank had so little fuel at the point when they crashed. And that was the only place the airplane was getting fuel from. So that is not good. We found that the Federal Aviation Administration pilot and operator guidance on the use of fuel system icing inhibitors would help raise awareness of the need to include this additive in turbine engine-powered aircraft fuel systems that require the additive. They found that at least four of the seven children on board the airplane were not restrained or were improperly restrained. Probably could have told you that without needing that because there were too many people on the airplane. Right. They found that although the number of passengers on board the airplane during the final flight leg did not comply with the BC-12 airplane flight manual limitations requiring no more than nine passengers, the four additional passengers on the airplane did not directly affect the outcome of the accident. They found that for survivable accidents, passengers aboard airplanes operating under 14 Code of Federal Regulations Part 91 would be afforded better crash protection if each seat and restraint system were limited to only one Passenger and children less than two years of age were restrained in an approved child restraint system. So literally everybody has to have their own seat. They found that although the download of non-volatile memory data provided key information in determining the circumstances that led to this accident, a flight recorder system that captured cockpit audio images and parametric data would have provided additional information about the accident that was not possible to determine from the downloaded non-volatile memory data. This is like adding a black box to an airplane, these days in general aviation, it's not even a black box so much. It serves a very similar function, but these days you can basically store all that data onto an SD card in one of these fancy avionics we have these days. Yeah. Operating on the systems that they just develop in the aircraft. I mean, they put cockpit voice recorder microphones into King Airs and PC-12s these days because it can just record all that onto one mm-hmm. data point, basically, rather than having to have full-on black boxes they can just make one of the avionics basically survivable from an accident. and that's That, that makes a lot of sense, really. Yep. Compact it all into one thing. All, the only thing is that it is in the nose of the plane. Yep. So but that, generally we're talking about airplanes that don't go quite as fast. That's true. <laughs> that is true. That's it for the findings. We'll get more into this whole mm, fuel additive thing and the recommendations. I touched it in brief in the findings. We'll talk about it more in the recommendations. Okay. The National Transportation Safety Board determines that the probable cause of this accident was one, the pilot's failure to ensure that a fuel system icing inhibitor was added to the fuel before the flights on the day of the accident. Two, his failure to take appropriate remedial action after a low fuel pressure state resulting from icing within the fuel system and a lateral fuel imbalance developed, including diverting to a suitable airport before the fuel imbalance became extreme. And three, a loss of control while the pilot was maneuvering the left-wing heavy airplane near the approach end of the runway. Three separate mistakes, but the one thing that they kept in common there was the pilot. Yep. It was always the pilot's fault, no matter which one of the three went wrong. Well, he allowed it to happen. Correct. Mm-hmm. It's not just that, oh, he was put in a rough situation. No, he allowed it to happen. Right. So this really is still a perfect storm of things going wrong that lead to the point of the accident, but... 
it's rare that we come to a point where there's one common denominator between all of them. And in this case, it is a person. Correct. And it is the pilot. And it's unfortunate. But it is, this is something that happens in general aviation a lot because they are a lot of single pilot operations. It's a lot easier to have a single point of failure then. Let's talk about some recommendations. They had basically the same recommendations to the Federal Aviation Administration as well as to the EASA in Europe. They recommended to amend certification requirements for aircraft requiring fuel additives, including fuel system icing inhibitors, so that those limitations are highlighted by a warning in the limitations section of the airplane flight manual. This is what I'm talking about. So Pilatus knew that this was an issue, but in the limitations for the aircraft, this was not considered a critical thing. Which is insane to me, given what happened. It's almost like they thought that it was just common knowledge or common sense to put the additive in anyway. I mean, it is. Yeah, don't get me wrong. Yes, but it's still technically a choice. What they're saying here is that while it's a choice, it should be understood that the limitations of the aircraft basically require it all the time. Question. Yep. Would it be feasible to put something like a warning where the refueling port is? Allow me to get there. Okay. They recommend requiring all existing certificated aircraft, both newly manufactured and in-service aircraft, that require fuel additives, including fuel system icing inhibitors, to have those limitations highlighted by a warning in the limitations section of the airplane's flight manual. They continue on to amend the certification of fuel placarding requirements that the aircraft requiring fuel additives include fuel system icing inhibitors have a fuel filler placard that notes the limitation and refers to the airplane's flight manual for specific information about the limitation. What that means is, yes, putting a placard basically by the fuel filling area, which if you have ever fueled an airplane or been around the fuel tank of any airplane, there is a placard that's literally round. It goes all the way around the port. And it reads all of the important information, and basically what it's saying here is to refer to the manual before fueling, to understood what is and is not required. Because at that point, say that the fuel truck was there, and knowing that the weather was what it was, could he have warned the pilot, hey, you need this? Right, yep. Finally, to the FAA and the EASA. They recommend issuing guidance on fuel system icing prevention that, one, includes pilot precautions and procedures to avoid fuel system icing problems aboard turbine engine-powered aircraft, and, two, describes the possible consequences of failing to use a fuel system icing inhibitor if required by the airplane flight manual, especially during operations at high altitude and in cold temperatures. Exhibit A. Yep. So that's really it for, like, the new recommendations they had. It was entirely about the FSII. Because it's a big deal. But this is where things get kind of juicy, because then... It's all about previous recommendations, (laughs) things that they have recommended in the past, important things, i.e., they recommended to the FAA to amend the 14 Code of Federal Regulations, Part 91, to require separate seats and restraints for every occupant. Even for children under the age of two? Yeah, that was the next thing. I don't know about these days if that's required, but I have to assume so because it's just the smart thing to do. And even then, because they're saying this is a previous recommendation, this is something that not only they wanted, they really wanted, and they wanted to emphasize, but this is something that's just kind of common sense. Like, just don't do it. They recommended amending 14 Code of Federal Regulations Part 91 to require each person who is less than two years of age to be restrained in a separate seat position by an appropriate child restraint system during takeoff, landing, and turbulence. Same thing. So, but what they're saying there is kind of the caveat to that is that during cruise flight, they can be in a lap, they can be up and moving about, but during... Take off landing and turbulence. They should have their own seat with their own restraint. That mm-hmm. works. That works for them. 
also to the FAA. All of this is in 2010, by the way, which is after the accident, but, but was before, before the risk report. report. They recommended establishing and implementing standard procedures to document and share control information, such as frequency changes, contact with pilots, and confirmation of receipt of weather information at air traffic control facilities that do not currently have such a procedure. These procedures should provide visual communications of at least the control information that would be communicated by the marking and posting of paper flight progress strips described in Federal Aviation Administration Order 7110.65, air traffic control. So... This is to the ATC, specifically, and this is about that whole weather thing with a receipt that they didn't yeah. ever get from the pilot, and how it was ultimately a non-factor in this accident, but... It could have been. It could have been, had the weather been bad, and the air traffic control wanted to be sure that the pilot had all of the pertinent information to make a safe landing at their new destination, because they had made a flight plan expecting weather in one place and then suddenly they change their destination mid-flight do they have all the needed information to make good decisions where they're going that's what the air traffic controller was trying to understand but didn't follow up on that and the pilot didn't follow through so they're saying that there needs to be a requirement somewhere a regulation on this but also it needs to be part of their flight strip which is what the air traffic controllers use when handling a flight there is one more recommendation that came up and it's a repeat but here's the thing on that it was considered to be open and an unacceptable response. Open, which means they were still in discussion, but they considered it an unacceptable response, and that is to no, require. No, they're saying they're. It's saying that they reopened it. Right, they reclassified it to open because it's considered an unacceptable response, which is denying the recommendation, basically. Yeah. Which is to require separate seats and restraints. Which I'm trying to look up right now, if that was indeed implemented. This is a difficult thing to find, and I'm not entirely sure, but I mean, it just, every pilot I've ever met always wanted every passenger on board to have their own seat in restraint. It makes sense. We talked about it with UA-232 mm-hmm. forever ago, mm-hmm. because there were children being held against the floor when that happened. Right. And it that would, didn't go well. It's yeah. like in a car, like you wouldn't have a kid in someone else's lap in a car, right. even if they were like in the back seat, not the front seat. Right. So why wouldn't you do so on an airplane? Right. Where, I mean, it's slightly and, different, but not by much. Right. And with the airlines, there are still lap infant rules. They're allowed to have a lap infant. That's why this recommendation is targeted at part 91, which is general aviation. All things non-commercial. It, it's, this is really targeting the specific thing, which we don't get to talk about very often, which is why I think this is interesting. And I really appreciate the recommendation, Kevin, because this is, yeah, we don't get to talk about this stuff very often, but this is the kind of prevalent stuff that's still going on in general aviation. It's not necessarily that it's an overlooked part of aviation, since it is a very large part of aviation in the United States, as well as in other countries. But it is mm, lacking a lot of the same safety regulations that come with airlines, because for airlines, it's so public. That's kind of the whole thing. So I wasn't able to find it for recommendation 121, which is what they had reclassified to open. Mm-hmm. But the recommendation 122, which you had read, yeah, 
of requiring each person who is less than two years of age to be restrained in a separate seat position by an appropriate child restraint system during takeoff, landing, and turbulence was closed and deemed unacceptable action, meaning they did not implement it. Right, because they probably couldn't find how to justify that in every airplane. Well, because you would need to, like, if you had a special restraint system, like a booster seat or whatever, Mm -hmm. you would have to provide that. There is no way to make people provide that service when you're supposed to have that restraint system. Right. Which means, like, you'd have to have extra weight to the aircraft because you're supposed to have a certain amount of infant seats on the aircraft or whatever. So it changes the dynamics of stuff. And it's a little, like, I kind of understand it's a little, like... This is a hairy one. Because you won't always have flights that have lap infants. Right. And there's no good way to regulate this in general aviation because the size of aircraft and seats on aircraft and types of seats in aircraft vary so widely in general aviation compared to in commercial aviation and airliners specifically in part 121. Because your seat's going to generally be pretty similar airline to airline. So the requirements there are pretty easy to keep in place. But for general aviation, this is a very difficult thing to do. So I kind of understand. But... I don't like it. (laughs) I think, but again, every pilot that I've met that travels, even with small children, they will find a way to sit that child in their own seat and restrain them because they don't want something to happen to them. No. I mean, this is just, it's unfortunate that it happened in this case that they didn't have the number of seats needed or the restraints. Okay. I found it. Okay. Its status is closed, unacceptable action. Okay. So there's that. So they didn't even do it for the individual seats. Nope. But it still seems like a legality issue. I mean, yes. Because it's still only, the aircraft is still only certified for a certain number of passengers and seats. Correct. So if you put more people on there, then you're still going against the certification of the aircraft, which is still illegal. Yes. Let me see. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I love reading things that are in second person. So, this is an official correspondence from the NTSB to the FAA. On June 23, 2011, you published a notice of proposed clarification of prior interpretations regarding the seatbelt and seating requirements of blah 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 part 91, which states that the shared use of a single restraint may be permissible, but the use of a seatbelt and or seat by more than one occupant is appropriate only if the seat belt is approved and rated for such use. The structural strength requirements for the seat are not exceeded, and the seat usage conforms to the limitations in the approved portion of the airplane flight manual. Our August 22, 2011 comments about this notice stated that we were disappointed that the proposed clarification did not discourage or prohibit the unsafe practice of allowing multiple occupants to share a seat and or restraint system, that it did not provide clear guidance to general aviation pilots regarding seat belt and seating requirements, and that the clarification could be misinterpreted regarding the use of shoulder restraints. On May 24, 2012, you published the clarification emphasizing that whenever possible, each person aboard an aircraft should voluntarily be seated in a separate seat and restrained by a separate seatbelt. However, the clarification allows for multiple occupants to use the same seatbelt and or seat if the seat usage conforms to the limitations contained in the airplane flight manual. In the final notice, you rejected our recommendation actions because a clarification cannot change existing regulations and because satisfying safety recommendation A-10-121 would require revising the regulations. 
In your recent letter, you stated that such rulemaking is not cost-beneficial and you do not plan any further action in response to this recommendation. Consequently, safety recommendation A-10-121 is classified as closed, unacceptable action. Juicy. Dramatic. I forget I can look these up if they were implemented or not. Mm -hmm. Someone remind me every once in a while. That is... hmm. I agree with them that it's disappointing, though. Oh, it's completely disappointing. Because they're saying, yeah, I mean, if it comes to cost-benefit, come on. No one uses... There is no such thing as cost-benefit when it comes to... Lives. Person safety, yeah. So, there's that. There's your legal eagle spiel. Yep. Okay, well, interesting stuff, because we don't get to talk about GA very often, let alone PC-12. So... Yeah. That was November 1, 2, 8... Charlie, Mike. Yep. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Remember, you can send us recommendations. Please, I beg of you, do not just send me a Wikipedia page. Try to see if there is an actual report at the bottom of that Wikipedia page. Because someone or sent somewhere us else. Lansa 508. And though I would love to cover it. It really is. It's high on our list because it is so interesting. There's no report. <laughs> but if somebody can find us the stupid report for that accident, we will cover it someday. We have been waiting. That was like number three on yeah, our list. Yeah, that was the plan for episode three, and we sat there for no, hours. No, it was episode five. Okay. Okay. It was planned for episode number five, and we couldn't I ever do very it. very quickly found out we could not do it. And ever since then, it's been on our list. I know why you want to I do. know why you want us we to do it. We all know. It is. Insane. Very interesting. I read the book, by the way, that she published. Is that the one that Kevin sent to us? Yes. Nice. It's good. It really does, like, it doesn't say much about the flight. It says a lot about what happened after the flight, which, of course, because she survived in the jungle. the part that she was, yeah. And it, a lot about her life before the flight took place, but not a lot about the flight itself. So it's not like we can use that book as, like, a great reference source for this, like, it's no, but it's a very interesting story. If you do not know it, you can look it up under Lanza 508. It does pull up. It and just Julianne Kopka. Yes. But don't ask me how to spell that. I don't remember. I don't either. Me neither. But yeah, just be aware when you send us stuff. We're going to look at a few things during the post episode and schedule them because I've been very busy and overwhelmed lately <laughs> to do it. But as long as we have enough information, we will schedule it. If there is not enough information, most likely either a mini-sode yep. or it can't get scheduled. So just keep that in mind. But thank you for your recommendations. We do appreciate it. I don't want to say that we, we don't appreciate your recommendations. We do. We definitely I just, do. It breaks my heart every time I have to email someone and be like, sorry, we can't do this. Right. I know you really want us to, but we can't. So... Anyway, on the note of recommendations, I'm going to say something vaguely controversial in that we're not yet scheduled out a year like we usually are. So in a way, we're kind of lacking in recommendations. I'm sort going of. to regret this so hey, bad. I said that last episode and you're like, be careful. I was like, but we're not. We're yeah, fine. no, it's true. A few people have we have gotten at recommendations. Yeah, we have gotten so. a handful recently. It might have been because that episode said so, <laughs> but who knows? Anyway, thank you again so much for listening. If you want to need extra content or you need extra content, like you've listened every week so far, you should join Patreon. There's a bunch of extra stuff on Patreon. We always add Miranda episodes, there's post episodes, there's blooper reels. There's more content on Patreon than there is out of Patreon. Yes. Yes, by far and away. 
So, and you get ad-free episodes. And you get merch. It's like amazing, except it takes us forever to send out merch. But we do eventually (laughs) send out merch. We do get there. So, anyway, thank you so much for listening. We do appreciate you. We hope you have a safe and healthy week, and we will catch you all next week. Keep Keep your your speed up. Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hardlandings Podcast and on Twitter at Hardlandings Pod. Subscribe and leave a five-star review on the platform you are using to listen. If you would like to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com, where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us, plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi from Not a Monster, Not a Boogeyman. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.